Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. We're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible, and this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses. And that's what we'll be talking about in this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's jump right into the questions. The first question comes from Jack Barazzini, our very own host of the Secrets of Stargate, who is also a patron, who asks, what is the morality of a situation where a small amount of humanity was to survive in an apocalyptic scenario and genetic diversity would be best preserved by people having children by multiple partners? Okay, so let's first think about what kind of scenario this would involve. Um, Now, genetic diversity is normally passed on, you know, when a male passes on his genes and a female passes on her genes. And there's a difference between the sexes in that women, females are in any population that whether human or not, any population that has sex, um, meaning gender is limited or at least in among mammals the limiting factor is females because uh they have more of an investment biologically in the child um mammalian species need to carry their young within them they can't just lay their eggs and split and um so as a result uh men males in mammalian species can impregnate multiple females and thus pass on their genetic diversity, but but females are only able to have uh, pass on their genetic diversity in a more limited way. A man can have more children than a woman can. And so any situation that would push us in the direction of polygamy, having more than one spouse, <clears throat> would have to be one where men were disproportionately affected. Uh, so you've had lots of men killed off, and the way to maximize genetic diversity would then be to have the few males that remain mate with multiple females. So we'd be talking about the form of polygamy known as polygyny, which is where a man has multiple wives, as opposed to the opposite polyandry, where a woman would have multiple husbands. If uh, So that would be the kind of situation we were talking about, something that killed off bunches and bunches of men. And in order to retain the genetic diversity that still exists in the male population, someone could propose this. Well, how would it square with uh, Christian teaching? The Council of Trent addressed this uh, in the 1500s, there actually was a discussion of polygamy that happened because one of the uh, German um, landgraves named Philip of Hesse uh, was like wanted to have more than one wife and ended up doing so. And also some people suggested that this could be a solution for Henry VIII's problem in finding an heir. There's no explicit command in the Bible not to take more than one wife. Uh, there is a saying of Jesus where he talks about uh, how God's original model for marriage was Adam and Eve, so not Adam, not Adam and Eve and Barbara. 
Um, and he, Jesus is applying that to the situation of divorce, but you can also say, well, it should also apply then to the situation of polygamy. And polygamy, uh, monogamy is clearly the optimal design for our species because we're born in equal numbers, you know, you at least approximately equal uh, as many male babies as female babies. And it's going to cause problems if and has historically caused problems if you have some of the men hogging the women, you know, that's going to get that's going to disturb the other men <laughs> and it can lead to problems. Um, so monogamy is clearly the the overall the best thing for our species and it's historically been the most common uh but um it's polygamy is not explicitly condemned in scripture so when you had philip of hesse and henry the eighth on the scene in the 1500s this got discussed in both protestant and catholic communities and the council of trent then uh, issued a canon uh, on this in which it said if anyone says that it is lawful for Christians to have several wives at the same time and that it is not forbidden by any divine law, let him be anathema. And so, you know, that's ever since Trent, that's been taken as, OK, no, 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 no polygamy. Um, but notice the way it's phrased. It doesn't just say this is intrinsically sinful. It says that one is not allowed to claim that it is not forbidden by any divine law. And someone could look at that and say, okay, well, maybe it's forbidden by a divine law that applies in, say, most circumstances. But maybe divine law doesn't prohibit it in certain extreme circumstances. And they even, in fact, may be thinking of the fact that God seemed to accept polygamy in the Old Testament, you know, and and didn't have a problem with it then. So didn't, you know, indicate a problem with it then. So maybe divine law doesn't maybe the divine law regulating this doesn't apply to absolutely every circumstance. So if we were in this kind of situation and if. Uh, Christians and particularly Catholics were going to maximize genetic preservation of ge genetic diversity in this way, there would have to be a doctrinal development on that point to square this somehow. Uh, on the other hand, there are other options. Christians or non-Christians are not bound by this. Uh, they have only natural marriages. And so um, the sacramental divine law that applies to Christian marriages wouldn't apply to them. They wouldn't particularly, being non-Christians, they're not really going to care what Christians are doing with their marriages anyway, necessarily. Um, and so they might pass on genetic diversity in this manner. But then there's a whole other um way of, of, of preserving genetic diversity, which is archiving DNA and using gene editing like CRISPR to, re, to reintroduce it later uh, through non-reproductive means. So if you've gotten a population that survived but has very low genetic diversity so that it could be, say, wiped out by a virus or something, then you could edit in uh, banked DNA to introduce new alleles into the population so that it becomes more genetically diverse more quickly. Interesting. Well, we'll also have a link to an article on polygamy and Christianity so people can read more about all that.
the great thing about these questions is you think it's oh it's straightforward yeah of course not and then you give us some more to think about which is what i love about that our next question comes from megan strickland who says uh, living in tennessee i've heard the story of the bell witch so many times i've lost count my husband was raised on it and has read every book and account of the story for those not familiar the incredibly short version is that a ghost named kate haunted the bell family and ultimately killed the patriarch john bell by poison Jimmy and Dom, what are your thoughts on this story, and what could it mean from a theological standpoint of a ghost or demon, because it's always demons, could kill a person? Is this even remotely possible? Love the show and love a whole episode or even a two-parter on this Southern Ghost story. Well, uh, I have the Bell Witch on the list, so I plan to get to it eventually. Um, in terms of... Uh, but I have not yet studied it in detail. In terms of could a ghost kill a person or a demon kill a person? Well, in the book of Tobit, we have the demon Asmodeus that is killing off this woman's husbands as she acquires them. And so uh, we also have in the New Testament demons doing things like causing epileptic fits and trying to throw an epileptic boy when he has the fits into fire or things like that. And if demons can cause epileptic fits, they, you know, if you're in the wrong situation, you could die. Like if you fall off a cliff or down a staircase or out of a window or something like that. So I don't see any problem in principle, with it being possible for a demon to kill a person. In terms of a ghost, if you go back and listen to our episode on the Border Patrol ghost, um, the it looks like the Border Patrol ghost tracks down his uh, killer and gets extrajudicial justice. Um, now, that's we don't know precisely what happened. It could be that he was just going to scare the uh, coyote that killed him, and the coyote then falls over a cliff through his own fault. Or it could be something more than that. Um, you know, God does not have a problem in principle with administering justice to killers. And so I can't preclude the exact ways this might happen. Uh, also, I'm aware of situations with poltergeists. And because I've been researching poltergeists lately, I'm aware of situations with poltergeists where they attempt or actually succeed in doing harm to people. Um there is a question, though, about what poltergeists actually are. Traditionally, they have been understood either as demons or as the ghosts of departed humans. But more recent research has indicated that instead of that, they might be telekinetic in origin. That um, Because one of the things they found with poltergeists is there tends to be a single person that the activity is focused around, usually a young person. And like a teenager. And it has been proposed that this may be because being a teenager can be very stressful uh, for some folks and um, it can be a very stressful time of life. And one of the proposals is what poltergeists actually are is spontaneous uh, psychokinesis that is being subconsciously manifested by what's known as the poltergeist agent, the person that's causing the poltergeist phenomena. And so if you have uncontrolled uh, psychokinetic abilities that are subconsciously manifesting your frustrations and throwing heavy objects around, well, yeah, that could that could hurt somebody and potentially mm -hmm. even kill them. 
Um, so there, I don't view any of these things as being intrinsically impossible. That's not to say that they're at all likely, uh, but they are proposals that are out there and we will be talking about them, including in relation to the Bell Witch. Excellent. Bill and Joanna Martell uh, write, Jimmy and Dom, we'd love a session on the mystery of the city of Troy. Central to the history myths of Greece, Rome, and Britain, as well as some of the most enduring literature of the Western world, did this city exist? Where was it? Did the Great Trojan War take place? And if so, when? Is there any historicity to the players of the Great Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid? Does imagery from the events at Troy inform Christian thought in its earliest formation? In regard to the last question, I don't know how much uh, the Trojan War informed Christian thought. Obviously, uh, Christianity emerged in a context where Greek culture was very influential in the Roman Empire. I mean, even the Romans were speaking Greek. Uh, even though they had Latin as their own language. Greek was the international language. Greek culture was highly prestigious. And a key part of Greek culture w were the Iliad and the Odyssey, the uh, poems by Homer. And um, and so lots of early Christians would have known those. I wouldn't be surprised if there are references to them in the Church Fathers, although I've never looked that up. Also, the Romans had hooked their own national epic into the Trojan War via the Aeneid, where uh, Aeneas ends up being one of the kind of not exactly the founder of Rome because, you know, Romulus and Remus, but nevertheless, you know, led to the founding of Rome. And so, you know, it's all wrapped up in the same cultural matrix. I haven't traced specific allusions. Um, in terms of did Troy exist, well, for many centuries, or I don't know many centuries, but for for quite a while, uh, scholars were skeptical of that and said no. They thought that um, that the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the other legends we know about the Trojan War, because it wasn't just the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, that it was it was all just early Greek myth and didn't really have any historical counterpart. But in the 19th century, a uh, German named Heinrich Schliemann uh, investigated this and concluded that Troy did exist. And he used clues in the ancient literature to identify its site. And that site is a place known at today as Hisserlich. Hisserlik is in Turkey. It's on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, which you would need because you've got to sail your ships to Troy. It needs to be a border city. I mean, a, a seacoast city. Um, and um, and generally today it's accepted in archaeology that, yeah, uh, Schliemann was right. And Hisserlik is the site of the historical Troy. There have been archaeological studies done on it. In fact, just earlier this year, in August of 2021, a group of archaeologists claim they found a structure that may actually be the Trojan horse. Um, and we'll have a link to that, as well as links to Heinrich Schliemann and the site of Troy. Um, now, that's also been disputed that they found the Trojan horse. And this may be the Greek equivalent of people claiming every few years to have found Noah's Ark when really they haven't. Um, but uh, it, it is uh, taken seriously that Troy was a real place and that the Greek literature may preserve authentic memories of a war between the, you know, the the Greek 
culture and Troy, uh, because, you know, you had Greeks coming from different places. It wasn't just one body of them. Um, and then beyond that, how historical individual figures like Odysseus or Achilles um, or um, Paris or Egypt, Paris yeah. or Helen <laughs> may be, yeah. um, that's something that would I don't know that there's an established opinion on. They may or may not have different levels of historicity, but that's a question I haven't investigated yet. Mm. John Henry asks, I'm now reading the Old Testament to the kids, and they're asking me about how to reconcile God's harshness with his kindness. How can he command stoning for adulterers and then during his incarnation tell people to only cast stones if they have no sin? How can he want us to fear him and love him at the same time? How can he give such harsh laws of justice to people in ancient times and then command us today to be meek and patient with the wrongs others do to us? How is it that forgiveness is the fulfillment of the law and not its abolition? I have some answers, but I'm finding that what I have isn't quite satisfactory, and some of the other answers I've come across seem downright wrong. Any good books or talks or essays on this topic you might suggest? Well, there's kind of a lot there. Um, a couple of books that you might find useful in this regard are Hard Sayings by Trent Horn and Dark Passages by Matthew Ramage. Uh, both of them are Catholic attempts to wrestle with some of this kind of material. In terms of um, uh, in terms of answering the questions, at least briefly here, and Dom, you may need to help me to make sure I don't forget any, um, but one of the things that Jesus makes very clear in the Gospels, and this shows up particularly in, in Matthew 19, is that God tolerated the Israelites doing certain things that he didn't fully approve of because he, he had chosen them as his people, but they hadn't yet been cultured in his ways. And so he's dealing with people at a very low state of uh, catechetical formation, and he therefore allows them to have, as part of their law, legal practices that don't fully reflect God's will, but he's willing to work with them. It's kind of like today, you know, there are lots of politicians who claim to be Christian who nevertheless support abortion. Well, okay, it's, you know, we thus have to kind of tolerate this for now while we work towards its abolition. And God did something similar. He tolerated practices that the early Israelites weren't ready to give up yet, and then over the course of time educated them in his ways. And Jesus cites uh, allowing men to divorce their wives as an example of this. So the Mosaic legislation said if you if a man divorces his wife, he's got to write her a, a bill of divorce so she can prove she's no longer married to him. But really, God doesn't want people abandoning their spouses. And so we see this and we see other examples, too, like um, the uh, there was a proverbial saying in ancient Israel that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the fathers have sinned and now their children are being punished for it. And the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah are all over that saying, no, 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 this is not God's way. The only the person who sins is going to experience punishment. 
you may experience suffering if you didn't sin, but that's not the same as being punished. So even though early Israelites conceptualized punishment as spanning generations, including innocent generations, God makes it clear over time that is not his way. And so when we look at some of these laws, like stoning adulterers, well, that's how people in the ancient world felt about things. Um, And you know, they had honor killings and things like that. And essentially, uh, stoning adulterers is a form of honor killing. And they had a very highly honor-based culture. And God was willing to let this happen for now, but it doesn't reflect the fullness of his will. So when Jesus comes, he then says, okay, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Now, that doesn't mean you never punish people. But it does mean that in some circumstances, it's appropriate not to, to show mercy. And so that's another thing to take into account. When you're listening to Jesus' statements in the New Testament, he's talking on an individual level. He's not talking about running a society, because in a society, there has to be punishment for some things. There has to be a criminal justice system. But that doesn't mean we as individuals need to be the agents of that or need to inflict the punishment ourselves. That's something that should be left in general to the state um, or to the competent authority. You know, like within a family, the parents get to decide when punishment is needed and when it's not. So um, so those are some things that may help. Uh, with understanding some of this. Um, Also, forgiveness is not the fulfillment of the law. Love is. And love can mean forgiveness at times, but it can also mean holding someone accountable at times. So the situation is not simply forgive everybody and not never hold them accountable for what they've done. Um, Let's see. Fear and love. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, so fear is a it, when the Old Testament talks about fearing God, like, you know, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not thinking of fear the way we do. Um, we're th- we think of fear as as uh, as terror, as an emotion that's very negative and has no positive aspect when um when the Old Testament authors are talking about fear, they mean re- what we would call reverence. Because if you are revering someone like a king, well, you're aware that the king has power over you, and thus you need to treat him with respect for that reason, among others. And in and really, when you read about the fear of the Lord, what what it means is not being terrified of God. What it means is having reverence for God. Excellent. Uh, next, Nick Wan asks, which mystery on the mysterious to do list are you most excited to get to? Well, it varies from time to time. By the way, I like that, the mysterious to-do list, um, (laughs) which has like 1,700 entries on it, although we've done about 200 of them now, so I guess there's about 1,500 left. Um, At this point, it's always growing. Uh, It it varies over time what I'm most excited to do, and oftentimes it's whatever I've just done. Uh, I'm most excited to record it and get it out there. In terms of some that... um, 
that uh, I'm currently and actually for a long time have been excited to do, but haven't yet because of the complexity of the cases are the uh, the Zodiac Killer uh, from the late 60s and, and 70s. Um, he actually only killed like five people, but um, but it's a fascinating case and a very complex one. And so even though I've done some work on turning that into scripts, I haven't found exactly the right balance yet, uh, in part because it's complex enough. If we go through the suspects, it could be like a three-parter. Mm. And so, and I don't like doing three-part true crime. I, I tend to avoid three-parters in general, and especially a three-parter of true crime. Um, so I'm working on that. What we might have is an initial one or two-parter laying out what the public knew about Zodiac and then wait a while and come back and say, okay, now that you've heard the facts, let's apply them to the suspects and see who pops out. Um, another one though, which is also involves a lot of really rich, fascinating stuff is the 1890s um, airship mystery. In the 1890s, there were these mystery airships that started showing up in California and in Texas and in other states. And some people have looked at them and said, oh, early UFOs. Well, no, but not a, not extraterrestrial UFOs anyway, but there's some really interesting stuff to get into there. And uh, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to doing the 1890s mystery airships. And that also may be one that gets broken up in more than one segment because of how they appeared so many places and there are so many different stories about them. Um, but I need to I need to figure out a way to present that. Mm. Um, also, one thing that uh, and uh, that I've been interested in like lately and is going on right now, I've mentioned on the show or at least in an episode that'll be releasing soon that I have kind of a long-term oral history project I want to do with, um, with uh, people connected with the Stargate psychic spying program, either people on the civilian side or people on the military side. Um, we started that with Paul Smith and did a two-parter with him. I've subsequently done some additional interviews that will be sequencing. We're not going to put them all together in a big bunch because I, I want to keep a mix of topics. But just lately, I've had this huge rush of, uh, of, of interview requests being granted or people being put in touch with me and say, hey, um, Jimmy's a good interviewer. Maybe you should talk to him. And um, so it hasn't all been me approaching others. Sometimes it's been other people facilitating uh, these. But I have all of a sudden all these interview possibilities with people connected with the program. And so I'm going to do I'm going to strike while the iron is hot and get them recorded um, and then figure out how to space them out over the next number of months. So we and we've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up in those, but we may have a kind of regular monthly check in with Stargate for a while as I process those interviews, because I don't want to let them slip through the cracks. Cool. I would say that the ones I look forward to, there are some classic ones like, you know, the Lost Ark of the Covenant, the Shroud of Turin, that sort of thing. Uh, I love the UFO ones. Uh, there was one I heard recently, I think a listener had mentioned, which I hadn't heard about before, but this idea that 
but before industrialization that there were these diaphanous creatures living in the upper atmosphere mm-hmm. that were killed off by pollution before we ever were able to fly high enough to get up there. Uh, it's, it was a kind of a fa- it sounds very sci-fi to me, uh, but it's kind of a fascinating idea. That's actually referenced in one of our upcoming questions. I don't know if we'll get to it today or not, though, but it's oh. in this question list. Excellent. Excellent. OK, I forgot that it was a <laughs> it was a patron question. So let's get we'll get to that in a second then. Uh, so let's continue on. Rob Leonardi asks, uh, in regards to natural prophecy or if it's real remote viewing, would someone with aphantasia be more susceptible to, for the lack of a better term, tuning in while sleeping than others as compensation, such as hearing gets better if sight is lost? So the idea that when someone loses one sense, their others amplify is definitely out there. I mean, you hear that a lot. The concept is called sensory compensation. I don't know what the evidence, I haven't studied the scientific evidence in detail about to what extent sensory compensation is real. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, if you go blind, you're going to start using your hearing for more things. But does your hearing actually get better or are you just using it differently is a different question. Um, This concept actually goes back to the ancient world. Um, For example, Uh, In Greek mythology, there's a figure known as Tiresias who is blind, but in in compensation for his blindness, he's given second sight. So he's he he doesn't have his first sight, but he's got second sight. So he's a blind prophet. And you see similar stories elsewhere. Um, Aphantasia, for uh, those who may not be familiar, is the is a condition that some people have where they don't naturally form mental images of things. Um, So like for most people, and they tend not to realize this, they think people around them are using metaphors. So if I say, picture yourself in the middle of a field and you're smelling the the breeze and the flowers and there are bees buzzing around, most people will imagine an image of them in a field, and they will imagine these other sensory experiences. They will imagine feeling the breeze and smelling the flowers and hearing the bees buzzing, and they imagine this sensory experience. Um, But aphantasiacs don't. Uh, They don't have these mental images that come to them, and they tend to grow up assuming that when people say things like, imagine you're in a field and so forth, that it's some kind of metaphor Hmm. that other people are using and they don't mean it literally. But no, other people do mean it literally. Imagine this, picture this in your mind's eye. Um, And so what Rob is asking is for for people who are um, who are aphantasiacs, who don't have this mental image forming process, um, could that cut out some of the distraction that they might uh, that normal people would experience in using something like natural prophecy, which was St. Thomas Aquinas's term for precognition, um, like you, which could manifest and classically in Aquinas manifests in dreams. So like if you if you're an aphantasiac and you don't have these mental images, would that let you as when you're asleep, tune into the signal line of precognition better or Otherwise, could it help you tune into the signal line in remote viewing and get data about a distant target? Well, um, so you'd have to test it. 
Um, the the only way to answer this question would be to test it empirically. Um, having said that, oh, uh, I, I will say something, but also we'll have links, by the way, to uh, an article on Aphantasia and also a link to an article on Aphantasia, Imagination and Dreaming. Because it turns out that even though aphantasiacs don't produce mental imagery when they're awake, they do when they're dreaming. So it so even if you're aphantasiac in waking life, it may not you may still have all the normal visual distractions everybody else does when they're dreaming. So you that's one reason to think you might not have an advantage. There's also another reason to think that aphantasiacs might not have an advantage, which is that some of and we'll be talking about this in some um Upcoming interviews I did with a parapsychologist named Edwin May, who is a physicist and has done a bunch of studies of uh, parapsychological phenomena. There is uh, there is some evidence to suggest that psychic functioning is correlated with a kind of hyperconnectivity in the brain where different brain regions are cross connected with each other in unusual ways. And the idea is the more connections you have, the bigger your antenna may be or something for picking up the psychic signal. Um, and so given that aphantasiacs don't have normal image development in mental image development, they may lack some of this connectivity that is that most people have the people who would have more brain connectivity would be people who have a different kind of weird sensory thing happening uh and this is because one of the things Ed May who ran the uh civilian he was like in charge of the civilian side of the Stargate program uh, and I asked him about this in his in the interview uh, that we'll be releasing with him. Um, some uh, I knew that some of his best remote viewers had a condition called synesthesia. And so I asked him about that. And in the interview, he said all of them did. Hmm. Now, synesthesia is a form of is a condition that various people have where they cross connect. So there's the hyperconnectivity. They cross-connect different sensory modalities. Um, so, for example, they will associate letters and numbers with colors. So they may think, okay, red, A is red, B is orange, uh, E is brown, 3 is purple, 4 is sea green, things like that. Um, they also may associate sounds with colors or sounds with shapes and textures and they may listen to music and you know in their mind's eyes see these shifting shapes and textures that go along with the music they may have a variety of others there's actually dozens of different types of synesthesia and a, about four percent of the population is synesthetic and so it turns out that hyperconnectivity which may be the opposite of aphantasia, may actually be correlated with higher psychic functioning. Now, since I've mentioned it before, and I know some of the audience will be aware of this and will be curious, I am a synesthete. Um, I have 
actually several forms of synesthesia. One of them is what's called grapheme color synesthesia, where you associate letters and numbers with colors. In fact, all of the colors I just named in association with letters and numbers, those are from my personal synesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have other forms of synesthesia, um, some of which I've only recently identified. Um, but I was uh, in an email discussion with an author who's an expert on synesthesia, and I was describing my internal experiences to her. And she said, oh, you are a polysynesthete. You've got lots of interesting stuff going on. Um, so yeah, I have multiple forms of this and hypothetically, if I were a practiced remote viewer, I might function, I might function better than average. On the other hand, I might not. So I don't know. Okay. T. Hazlitt asks, if you're really good at mental reservation or phrasing true statements in true order with omitted words to achieve a statement that is true, but not truthly. Does the desire to be misleading become the pivotal fulcrum for it being a sin, if it is a sin? My favorite example, uh, quote, I was at work yesterday. I love my job for the sake of my family. I'll work here when I have to for as long as possible until I get a better job. Thank you, sir. So um, whether or not this form of mental reservation counts as lying is going to depend on your definition of lying because it's it's defined different ways. Um, and there's not a single agreed upon way of defining it. Actually, a number of paper a number of years ago, I read a paper uh, that had a prototype theory of lying and a prototype uh, definition is one where you have certain characteristics that tend to be associated with, okay, if it's got most of these characteristics, we're going to put it in this class. But it's not a, it's, that's different than the kind of definition where you, where you have a list of necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, so a bachelor, we have a necessary and sufficient condition definition for that. A bachelor is a man who is not married. Um, but, and anything that fits unmarried man is going to fit the definition of a bachelor lying though is a little harder to uh to get everyone to agree to it's going to have things like there's deception involved and there's an intent to deceive and maybe it's done by by words um, but maybe it's not and so um we have certain things that we would consider like okay a prototypical example of lying everyone would look at that and say yeah that's clearly lying but then there are other examples that maybe not everybody would agree it, to give another example to help maybe make it a little clearer um when we think of a bird we have a prototype bird in mind. And in our culture, almost everybody thinks of something that's kind of like a robin or a sparrow or, uh, you know, a blue jay or one of those little kind of birds you see in your yard. Those are the prototypical bird. You don't think penguin or ostrich <laughs> as as your first thought when you think of a bird. And so, um, so there is an in linguistics, there's this thing known as a prototype definition where you're you're kind of you you judge something to belong to a certain category depending on its degree of similarity to a prototype case of that category. 
And so lying may be more like that. So partly it's going to depend on your theory of law, on, on your definition of lying. Whether it's, whether it's morally permissible is then going to depend on your theory of lying. Is lying ever legitimate or not? People have different opinions on that. Um, some people would say it's okay to lie to Nazis at your door about the fact you're hiding Jews in your attic. Other people would say, no, you can't do that. Even if something's not properly speaking a lie, though, there can still be impermissible forms of deception that are not morally legitimate. In terms of mental reservation, one of the things that... Um, that Catholic moral theology recognizes. So mental reservation is when you, you, what you're saying is technically true, but you're omitting something. And like, I love my job because it provides money for my family, but otherwise I loathe it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, well, uh, so that's an example of mental reservation. And the church recognizes that mental reservation can be legitimate. You don't have to tell everybody all of the relevant things all of the time. Um, there is a role, as the catechism says, for discreet speech and honoring people's privacy and things like that. And that's basically mental reservation where you're speaking discreetly and not telling everything you know. That is legitimate, but not always. There are situations where mental reservation is deceptive in a way that is not acceptable. And there are Catholic moralists historically would say there are ways where you're just really lying at this mm. point. Um, if you if if you are giving your words such an unexpected meaning that there's no way the person could possibly guess it. And you mean for them to have a view that is false as a result of what you're saying to them, then mental reservation becomes functional lying. And or at least you can argue that depending on your definition of a lie, whether it would then be permitted, though, is then going to depend on your theory of lying and whether lying would be justified in this circumstance. The seal of the confessional would be a kind of proper uh, mental reservation, you could say that. And attorney-client privilege and similar things mm -hmm. like that, yeah. In the secrets of the Vatican keeps, you know, for private matters, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, KLB writes, what's the deal with COVID-19 and its variants and vax or no vax, man-made or natural? Why does one science say one thing and another another? Masks or no masks and all the studies that go with that, testing accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. Bishops and Pope for and bishops against. So just what is the bottom line here? Well, uh, I'll get to the bottom line in a moment. But preliminary to that, the church's competence deals with matters of moral teaching, not science. So the church has spoken to the morality of the available COVID vaccines and says they are not principally they are not in principle morally objectionable. Uh, they're not necessarily the best that could have been developed from a moral perspective, but the way they were developed and manufactured does not prevent the faithful from being able to use them. Um, however, it, it even in the document where it talks about that, it says we're not judging the science here. So the science of are they effective and are they safe, that's for the scientists to say, not for the church to say, because it's not the church's area of expertise. The broad swath 
the broadest swath of the scientific community has concluded that they are safe and effective. That's not to say they're always effective. No vaccine is always effective. That's not to say they're always safe. No vaccine is always safe. Um, but most, the, in fact, the large majority of people, the scientific studies indicate, will greatly benefit from having a much less chance of either getting COVID or uh, having serious illness or hospitalization or death if you get the vaccine. And they will not have, statistically speaking, comparable harms as a result of taking the vaccine. Um, Having said that, you know, why is there a lot of diversity on this question? Well, the results of science are always provisional. And so we learn more over time. We knew we know more now than we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And also science is represented by scientists, some of whom have different levels and areas of competence and some of whom are going to be whackdoodle kooks and ideologues from any perspective you can think of. So you're going to have kooky whackdoodle ideologues who are against the COVID vaccine, and you're going to have kooky whackdoodle ideologues who are in favor of the COVID vaccine. And so the bottom line is we just got to do the best we can. We've had the church weigh in on the moral question. And in terms of the scientific questions, you got to take a step back and say, okay, what does the evidence look like to me? If you, if you have really good evidence that would dispute the majority findings, which involve studies with now millions of people, because millions of people have received the vaccine worldwide. I mean, hundreds of millions have received it. If there were bizarre, you know, really bad side effects, or if it just didn't work at all, those things should have shown up statistically by this point. So you would need some pretty compelling evidence to overturn that. Um, now, having said that, I'm not commenting on, you know, on whether one should receive or not receive. I'm not addressing that issue. I'm just describing the state of the evidence. And it's for people to make their own determinations based on their own situation. What's the best thing for them and their family to do? Uh, then we have another question from Thomas Jose Maria Kitching, who says, Jimmy and Dom, I love you guys and have been listening for years. My question is not typical because you've already addressed it once, but with the benefit of elapsed time, in hindsight, I'm really not satisfied. I can't help thinking that there's something intrinsically evil going on in relation to this COVID crisis. I can't explain it, but I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about it and has been from day one. It feels to me like sheep being separated from goats. After 18 months of watching this from the sidelines, I can't help thinking that this whole situation is about a controlled crash of currencies which haven't been viable for years, beginning when the U.S. temporarily printed money in 1971 to avoid returning France's gold held since World War II, and years before when other countries move, moved away from the gold standard. This is a controlled crash to avoid countries defaulting on debts in Zimbabwe-style inflation, one where billionaires are able to become trillionaires in the process while us plebes pay the bill. We're heading for cashless societies, digital currencies, digital IDs from vaccine passports, transhumanism, and a Chinese-style social credit system. I'm also concerned that this winter we'll see damaging antibody-dependent enhancement responses amongst the vaccinated, and that governments will spin this to sound like it was the unvaccinated that are to blame. 
Please tell me that I'm wrong, because I want to be wrong. Yours in Christ. Dear Thomas, you're wrong. So, <laughs> um, now, you wanted me to tell you that, so that's what I told you. Now let me see what I can do to back that up, and to what degree I can back that up, because I stated it rather absolutely, but I'm going to have to give you some qualifiers. The first one is, you know, if the Holy Ghost is really telling you this, you should believe the Holy Ghost. However, how do you know it's the Holy Ghost? Uh, and one of the things that, um, that uh, the New Testament points out is that not every spirit is of God, and therefore we should test the spirits to find out, are they from God or not? Um, this could be a spirit whose purposes are opposed to the Holy Ghost, and he wants you to buy into this mindset where all of this is a big sinister plot, and so you're you're being unduly suspicious of your fellow man and blaming them for things that, in fact, they're not actually guilty of, and denying yourself and other people various benefits that you would otherwise have. Um, and it this also could be preparation for leading you down some other ideological rabbit hole that would be destructive to you and or other people. So um, so I would say, follow St. Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything and then hold fast to what is good. But don't just assume because you're having these thoughts that it's the Holy Ghost speaking to you. I would say, okay, if it's the Holy Ghost speaking to you, ask for some confirmation. Like, to be led to actual solid evidence and not just rumors and internet gossip, but actual solid evidence that these claims are true and not just speculation. I mean, you're going to have to use critical thinking. That's what it means to test everything, to not just assume what you're being told is true, but to actually check it out. Um, similarly, uh, maybe the Holy Ghost could give you a sign uh, something that is uh, very unexpected to happen. Because if you pick something expected, you know, oh, it's going to be hot tomorrow or it's going to be cold tomorrow. Well, okay, that's not a good sign because that had a good likelihood of happening anyway. How about I go out on my lawn and there is a long lost relative I never expected to see and they came without calling first? You know, not necessarily that, but something that's very improbable, if you want to say, is confirmation of this is coming from the Holy Ghost. And you want to you want to also look at this and say, if it's the Holy Ghost telling me this, why would he be doing that? How is this going to help me? Is this going to help me grow closer to God? Is this going to help in some other way? Or is this something that looks like it could actually damage my relationship with God or with other people. And so I, I I can say that from my perspective as an outsider, the various things you name are things that need to be watched out for. I mean, I mentioned regularly on Mysterious World that inflation is caused by the government because it is. That's the reason we have inflation. The government prints more money than the economy is able to grow in new goods and services. Um, I also think that we need to watch out for uh, for 
transhumanism. We did a whole episode on that for things like the Chinese style social credit system. We need there. There are dangers out there. But what's happened here is is you have you're looking at a view that combines these multiple dangers in a way where there's no clear evidence that COVID is being used to bring this about. It's one thing to speculate and say, hmm, could some of these things happen as a result of COVID? Well, yeah, maybe. But do you have evidence that really this is going to happen on this? All of these things are going to happen and on a global scale and right now as a result of COVID? That seems much more speculative to me. And so I don't and, and some things like the you mentioned people having antibody dependent enhancement responses to the vaccine, that's not borne out by the statistical evidence. And we'll have a link to uh, info on from a ch- uh, children's hospital um, on ADE responses and why the COVID vaccine is not expected to produce them, um, given the evidence we have. I mean, like I said, this has been given to hundreds of millions of people. Rare reactions, the rare reactions are all going to be known already. And ADEs that lead to subsequent infection or worse infection, it doesn't seem to be part of them. So um, taking the evidence of of the reason perspective coupled with the faith perspective, I don't I think there are reasons to be concerned about the future and to watch the future. But I don't think I see good evidence here for the Holy Spirit is really telling you this stuff. I think it's more likely it's one's own concerns manifesting, or if there is anything supernatural going on here, it's it could be a spirit other than the Holy Spirit that just wants you to to be afraid. And as St. Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Excellent. Uh, Father Anthony says, Dear Jimmy, one. Have you ever read any books by acclaimed Catholic sci-fi writer Gene Wolfe, specifically his magnum opus, The Book of the New Sun? There are lots of mysteries in those books and probably up your alley. I appreciate the recommendation, Father Anthony. I have read a little bit of Gene Wolfe and a little bit of the first book of the New Sun, The Torturer's Apprentice, if I recall correctly, but I have not read... um, I have not read any complete ones. I've read things that are more like short stories and stuff. But I'll keep it in mind for the future. Two, how incorrupt are the incorruptible saints? Are there any recent saints who can be classified as incorruptible with today's scientific knowledge? From the point of view of faith, what do we do about saints in olden times who were considered incorruptible? Love the show. Thanks for all your hard work and interesting stories. Well, I haven't done a lot of research into incorruptibles yet. I do have it on the list, uh, the mysterious to-do list, and I do plan on doing an episode on incorruptibles in the future. Um, I would say that one thing to be aware of is even though a lot of people will look to incorruptibility as evidence of a person's sainthood, incorruptibility is not exclusive is number one is often not it it doesn't mean they're pristine um it just means they don't have the normal level of corruption one might expect given how long they've been dead the other thing is it is not unique to to christian saints there are other people in the world who display degrees of incorruptibility based on what are presumably natural causes. I mean, it also could be, you know, hey, well, this person, even though they weren't a Christian, they died in God's grace and they were 
they were a friend of God, and so God's given them this gift of incorruptibility as well. Um, but there also are uh, natural th- causes that can arrest the decay process. And as a result, the church doesn't look on this as a make or break thing. So we shouldn't make too much of incorruptibility one way or the other. Uh, Corrupting, having your body corrupt after you die is not a sign that you're not a saint. And having your body not be as corrupt as you would expect is not an automatic sign that somebody is a saint. All right. Michael Hodges asks, will there be sports in heaven? And if there is, will there be no injuries? Because some sports like boxing and American football require intense physical contact. Well, this is kind of like, will we have pets in heaven? If you need sports in heaven to be happy, then you will have them. Um, Having said that, you may not need them to be happy. On the other hand, we do continue to be physical entities. We will have our bodies after the resurrection. And if God gives you something, it's because he means you to use it. So we will have a function for our bodies. We will be able to do things with them. And some of those may be athletic in nature, and they may involve sports. Um, Given the lack of limitations that Jesus's body displays after his resurrection and the fact that we're told we're going to be like him suggests that we're going to have the equivalent of superpowers in heaven. And uh, I don't know, one of those superpowers may be invulnerability. So maybe if you have intense contact sports like boxing or football, you may not get hurt. Or even if your nerves are functioning, you know, the way they do in this life, so there's some physical pain, you won't experience any kind of permanent eternal injury. Um, You're not going to be permanently benched on account of that or have, you know, permanent ringing in your ears or anything like that. Uh, So if we do have sports, which we may, we won't have to worry about it. And also um, attitudes regarding sports in heaven would be a bit different. Um, It could be like in Japan where they're rooting for a tie in a baseball game. Hmm. Um, you know, they don't want to see one team crush the other. At least that's the report I have of how baseball works in Japan. They're like wanting the two teams to tie. Um, on the other hand, in heaven, so it could be that. It could be we want to see both teams win and thus have a tie. Or it could be we want to see, literally, we want to see the best person win. And the person who doesn't have maximized athletic ability in a particular context, it's no shame not to lose because he did his best in heaven. And uh, it was still it was good to see him do his best. And it was good to see someone else do even better. And they're both winners in that sense. Nice. Mark Smothers asks, I was wondering if you all had any thoughts on the Philip experiment that was conducted in Ontario in 1972. The claim is that they created a ghost, but what do you think happened? I'd like to hear your take on it. Thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. We'll have a link to the Philip experiment so people can read more about it. Um, The psychiatrist or psychologist who was the head of this thought that the the results they got were produced by purely natural psychological phenomena. So they 
invented a ghost. They made up facts about a person known not to exist. And then they did seances and they would find that the table would tip and things like that. Um, and, and, and the guy who was in charge of it all said, yeah, this is just ordinary natural psychological phenomena. There's not really a ghost here. Um, but people can do things like table tipping subconsciously without even realizing it. Um, and forgive me if I'm forgetting the detail on the, it may not have been literal table tipping, but there were things like that. And the guy in charge of it all thought that this is just natural and it's possible. Um, in fact, a hypothesis, which we mentioned in our previous discussion of uh, seances, is that one explanation that both the British and the American Societies for Psychical Research started looking at back in the 1800s when they went to mediums uh, and were trying to use mediums to verify the survival hypothesis that we continue to exist after death, one of the things that they had to consider was could these ghostly personalities the mediums are talking to just be their imagination? Could they be constructs um, based on the social role of being a medium? And really what's happening is the person is just using psychic functioning to detect the information they're coming up with. Like if, if you come and you say, OK, tell me about my dead relative how are they doing? And they come up with surprising information that they shouldn't naturally know about your dead relative. Maybe they're reading your mind and thinking they're reading the mind of your dead relative. And mm. so if you have this, let's invent a ghost thing, it could be the same thing. It could be that Philip, the ghost in this case, is just another one of these constructs. And if Philip comes up, with any information that he shouldn't have naturally or that the group shouldn't have naturally, maybe it's psychic functioning that's happening, but being attributed to this constructed ghost personality. Or maybe you've got an impersonator on your hands. Maybe you came up with Philip and a, a different ghost showed up and said, oh, yeah, I'm Philip. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Let's have some fun. <laughs> or maybe it's demons because it's always demons. It's always demons. <laughs> uh, and then Elizabeth Bauman asks, in a few months, I'm going to be hopefully donating a kidney to my husband. I'm inclined to believe that in the resurrection, my body will have the scar, at least since Jesus's resurrected body has his scars and probably only one kidney. But will my husband's resurrected body have my donated kidney or will he just have his original kidneys? I'm inclined to think it depends on what he does with my kidney once he has it. It's the answer to this question is we don't know. Uh, we can speculate on the different possibilities, but ultimately we don't know. And one of the reasons for that is the cells in our body change out over time. I mean, you sometimes hear that all the cells in your body change out over a seven year period. Well, that's not really true, but they do change out and, uh, and you know, they die, they get removed, they die in a process called apoptosis, which is actually important for good health. You want cells to die when they start to senesce and stop functioning properly so they don't turn into cancer, among other things. Mm -hmm. um, and so you you want the cells in your body to change out over time. So actually, the cells in your kidney that you have today are not the same ones that you had when you were two years old. And so 
in it, it, it's like the ship of Theseus, which is a famous problem in philosophy. Um, Theseus has a ship, but he over time it gets repaired and renovated one plank at a time, so that eventually none of the original planks are in this are in the ship. So is it really the same ship anymore? And when it comes to a kidney, we have something similar. It's kind of the kidney of Theseus. Um, you know, so what your body would have on Resurrection Day is something we can speculate about, but unfortunately, we really can't answer the question. But it's interesting to think about the possibilities. Excellent. So I think that's about all we have time for today, but we still have more patron questions, and we're saving them. We'll we'll, we'll address those in an, another patron's special episode. Uh, we want to thank all of our patrons, and especially those who submitted questions to uh, for, for today, you can submit feedback on anything we discuss by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave feedback there. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag, well, just send a tweet to at mys underscore world. Uh, we'll get it uh, either way. Yeah, people you, don't seem to use the hashtag, so we can we can uh, retire we that, that from the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it gives you more space to write your feedback. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com slash starquest and eventually at sqpn.com slash mysterious when we, we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>